electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lee. Your traders on the desk are Dan Nathan, Brian Kelly, Karen Feinerman, and Guy Adami. Tonight on Fast, Tesla CEO Elon Musk with a tone-deaf April Fool's joke about bankruptcy while the company is facing issue after issue. Are we witnessing the unraveling of the eccentric car maker? Plus, the markets are tanking today. We've got you covered. We are live for the next two hours Count them, two hours. And if you are distraught after the major sell-off, give us a call, 1-800-743-CNBC. We'll be answering your questions live on the air. And we start off, of course, with the market sell-off. The Dow is sinking at one point more than 700 points. The Nasdaq now joining the S&P and Dow. All three now negative for 2018, all three in correction territory, which means they are down more than 10% from their highs. And it started with tech, but it's not just tech now. General Motors down 24% from its highs. Look at some of the other names that have crumbled this year. ExxonMobil, Home Depot, Boeing, even Goldman Sachs, all in correction territory. So the question tonight is, is this sell-off signaling that something might be changing about the economy and not just the stock market? Guy. Well, I'm not sure it's about the economy, but i got to tell you, Karen Feynman, who's been doing the show as long as I have, I mean, she's not one to be hyperbolic, but I think it was the 14th of March, Karen said this was the most concerned she's been in years in terms of the market, and she was buying put protection, and that's proven to be somewhat, uh, somewhat prescient, by, quite frankly. And I think it's not about the economy. I think the economy is fine. It's about everything else that's going on. And there are a number of different reasons we can talk about. We can talk about bond yields going the wrong way. We can talk about things in the Trump administration. We can talk about technical levels. But quite frankly, they're all adding up to what we're seeing now. I think people got too complacent. And I think what we're seeing now is a continuation of something that started quite frankly, in the beginning of February. So it's not about Facebook. It's not about tariffs. It's about something more, in my opinion. It's about the Federal Reserve putting themselves into the conversation on the wrong side. Karen, how do you feel about the markets now, weeks after you made that call? Oh, thanks for saying. Well, it's Luke, true. You know, yeah, um, I'm concerned, but there are things that are starting to get enticingly cheap to me. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things I'll be looking to do is lighten protection, as difficult as that is to do. You know, you really want to hold on to it when it's so volatile, but I think it's, it's too expensive right now to have that much protection. So, you know, we open the show with a quote on GM. I'm long GM. That's been, you know, a painful one. There is so much bad news built into GM at this price. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I don't know, actually, if it's Tesla-related as a car company. Those valuations coming down are totally independent of that. It may be, but there's stuff that I'm, I'm looking to buy. I didn't, you know, I, I just think this is getting overdone. I don't love the uncertainty around, but you got to buy when there's blood on the streets, even if it's your own. This, I mean, it may not be, uh, you know, signaling that the economy is, is doom and gloom, but it, you know, this market sell-off may signal that we had been pricing in an economy that had been very good and that right. there was no room for error. And at this point in time, when we're starting to hear from, for instance, the ISM data today, all these manufacturers talking about tariffs and the impact of tariffs mm -hmm. on their factory activity, you got to wonder how much leeway is there in these expectations, well, very good ones That's for the exactly the problem, and that's why I'm not 100% sure that this is over yet. I mean, technically, I think we have some more downside, but look at the ISM manufacturing. Today we had prices paid going up, 
employment going down. That's not what you want to see. Those are the beginnings of a stagflationary environment. You have higher prices and no employment. People haven't had a raise for five years or longer. So to me, that's what the market has been pricing in since February. And I think we've done a pretty good job of talking about that. And you say, all right, well, now there's higher rates. How is that going to impact consumer spending? And when you looked at it today at about 945, 10 o'clock when this ISM data came out, you saw bonds, bond yields go higher, the dollar go higher, and that's when the market really accelerated to the downside. So until that's resolved, I think it's going to be very treacherous waters here. Yeah, so you guys have mentioned a little bit about the consumer stuff. I mean, to me, there's been a tell this year, and it really has been Walmart, and it's been Home Depot. I think you mentioned one of them in the beginning. I mean, these stocks did not rally when the market bottomed in mid-February. So to me, I think that was really interesting. And, and it was also interesting that as the Nasdaq shot right back up and made new highs in early March, the S&P never made a new high. And so when you think about the S&P 500, yeah, you know, those big tech names that kind of surged back up and made those new highs, they're about 10% Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Google, and Facebook of the S&P 500. It never made a new high. The Russell got back up there. Small caps did. The Nasdaq made a new high. So Walmart and Home Depot have kind of been telling you a little bit of a story. So we're trying to figure out, is there something going on with the consumer? I don't know. Did you see one of the hardest hit sectors today was the, um, were the home builders? I mean, I thought that was kind of interesting. So, you know, to me, I, you know, maybe we keep hearing from people. We just heard from Peter Navarro from the White House lawn. The economy is great. He actually called it the Trump economy. It's actually really the economy of the last president for all intents and purposes, if you think about it, um, because we haven't seen wage growth. We haven't seen job numbers that have been much above the last few years average. And all of a sudden, if these actions that they're taking are going to cause inflation, that could be the very thing. Listen, man, interest rates haven't gone up that much. Where's the 10-year? It's 273. You know where you started the year? 24. So to me, at the end of the day, I think there's a lot of self-inflicted wounds that are going on right now in this market and the economy. Did he listen, man? Was, he, was that yeah. point? I he was manning was. you, yeah. I yeah. think. Man. I think so. Um, you mentioned short, he mentioned short-term borrowing costs, and, and you know, it's the two-year. It's the short-term yeah. yield curve that has really gone higher. Which is maybe and, I didn't maybe And I didn't that is that tied to consumer enough. mortgages. Dan's been away for a while. You know, I know you've been in California, but that is my point. I yeah. think the back end of the curve is stubbornly low, mm -hmm. and the front end continues to grind higher. I, mean, I don't want to get wonky here, but LIBOR, something nobody ever talks about, is at levels we haven't seen in eight years, and it's gone up in a parabolic way over the last couple months. Seems to go up every day. What does that mean? I think close to $350 trillion-ish worth of in debt. assets, yeah. $1.2 trillion in consumer mortgages. Is pegged yeah. to, right. So it's not insignificant. And we have talked about Deutsche Bank. I got no horse in this Deutsche Bank race, but this is a stock that's making two-year low when the rest of the banks until recently have been doing very well. There's something clearly going on, and I think it's manifesting itself in rates. So in the past, what, six and a half minutes or so, we probably listed what four different reasons why one could be cautious about the market. Should we feel better or worse that there are so many sort of, that there's a pastiche of concerns as opposed to one, one thing that you can put your finger on? Uh, that is a great question. I don't know. I mean, it's interesting to see, you know, if you're an anxious person, you can find anything to be anxious about, right? And if you're an optimist, you can dismiss everything that's bad. A lot of these things, to me, the two that are the most important a big trade war. I really would hate that. I don't think we're in that yet. I don't, I mean, I, I don't know. Some days he's fully on board. Some days Trump seems to be backing off. I don't know. The other thing is not a rise in rates, a spike in rates. Right. A spike in rates to me would really sort of put a wrench in things. Those two things are my biggest fears. All this other stuff is noise. I got to just say, I got to disagree with you that this Trump deserves no credit for this economy. I can't agree with that. 
the tax cut is clearly helpful right, to business. Right, so we just reversed that entire we just reversed that entire move from the tax cut. I mean, that's how, that see to me Right, you know, we did, but not for the year that first year of his presidency. The market's yeah, up you know, a you know, time. It's funny, Karen. You know, for the second half of 2016, I think most of us on this desk thought that if Hillary Clinton had won that election that the market was going to continue to go higher, okay? And it was going to be the exact opposite. We thought that we were going to get this market that we have in 2018 in 17 if Trump won. So I was wrong on that, okay? But I thought we were going to have that gentle glide because all the everything was in place for the market to continue to move higher as the economy was starting to see green shoots, as we we're getting this global synchronized recovery, even as people were taking their foot off the pedal for QE and zero interest rates and that sort of thing. So to me, I think that was already in place. So that was actually what was supposed to happen, but it wasn't supposed to happen that he won and we were supposed to go straight up. And we've just reversed the whole tax. That's neither here. Me. I mean, at this point, it's neither here nor there, right? I mean, at well, this point, except for the fact that who, whose economy Mel, it is doesn't Mel, really make a What have we spent the last couple of weeks talking about is the chaos in, white, in the White House has actually started to kind of reflect itself in the stock market. And this is a White House that has repeatedly said that that is their right, scorecard. But that's, that's going forward, right? That's, that's what we're looking at now. So we can argue to the cows come home about what happened over the last year. But going forward, to me, I still think, and we saw it in the data today, the biggest thing are the tariffs. Are those going to raise prices? Right. That and also Trump, the tweets about Amazon. Has, they've got to get you concerned, right? What other target could he pick on next? I mean, how much in market capitalization has Amazon lost? since Trump started tweeting. Well, the stock's probably down, what, 12 I'm, I'm spitballing here, probably 12%, give or take. I mean, that's a pretty significant number for Amazon. I, what his company is next? I don't know. He's going, you know, it's funny, for somebody who claims to be the most business-friendly president of all time, in a lot of ways, he might be one of the most business, more Teddy Roosevelt, I think, than Ronald Reagan. But again, no, neither here nor there. Right. There will be another target. I right. think, though, in terms of Amazon, they will report in a couple weeks. I'm, I don't know anything, obviously, but I would be shocked if they didn't report a ridiculous quarter. And the reason why is because they can. They can tweak numbers a little bit. They can make those margins look fantastic. I would expect that. Right. And Amazon, 20. to me, is just like Netflix, right, where they can raise prices a little bit. If they raise my Amazon Prime membership by 5 or 10 bucks, I'm still going to order the same amount. So to me, I think they have a lot You're of room. You're just talking about how people weren't getting wage increases. Prices yeah. were going but, higher. But and wage same, increase, it's the same are... with Netflix, right? I'm talking, they will pay I, for yeah, that. Yeah, listen, it raises the three hundred dollars is going to be a different story. But five or ten bucks to cover higher postage, I think it doesn't this matter. This is the most important thing. If you think about Walmart and Amazon, they have nearly a trillion dollars in sales annually in America for the most part. Okay, and what are they doing? It's a massive deflationary thing. This is great for U.S. consumers. So the fact that we have a president who's attacking them is going to come after Walmart next. This is a great thing for consumers. You know, it's not great for consumers. A trade war because Walmart is going to have to pass those. Increased costs on to consumers. So to me, he is not pro-business. He picks and chooses. And to me, it's a very political setup. All right. Well, when the market first sold off back in February, our next guest said this. Whether we go lower now or lower over time or whether we back and fill, I think Friday a week ago is going to stand as an important intermediate top, whether it's three months or six. Uh, it's not likely to be exceeded anytime soon. Well, the S&P has fallen more than 6% since that call. Now he says something bigger might be at play. Let's check in with the chart master, find out why. Hi, Carter. Hi, hi guys. Um, yeah, there's uh, sort of, it's not quite the paradise that it was. Let's, let's talk about it. I mean, the first thing is we're so dependent on just a few names. It's been the case for a while. But just to put that uh, concept in real visuals, 
the entire value of the Russell 2000, thinking people talk about small caps, they might be outperforming, or they could make the new high when the S&P couldn't. Listen, you add up the entire Russell 2000, you had 2.5 trillion. That's the same as, not shown here, the top three stocks in the S&P. Top three. Um, it's all about a handful of names. In fact, just to move along here, if you were to talk about the top 10 stocks at 5 trillion, that's almost a quarter of the value of the S&P, the top 50. So 10% of the names represent half of the market. We are so dependent on a few, and those few are finally under some real pressure. Um, where might they be headed? So again, just to put this numbers, uh, 10, 20, 50 stocks. 50 stocks, 50%. It's not a market. It's just a handful of names, and those handful have started to come under pressure, whether it's Home Depot, Boeing, Caterpillar, and, we, and so forth. So two leading ladies that have yet to have the real uh, trouble that many other stocks have had. 150 moving average to the penny it bounces. Netflix to the penny it bounces. To the penny it bounces. The presumption is it has not had a full check back. That's a lot of air still to go. The other one, of course, is Amazon, even bigger. But the principle is the same. We're likely to get a check back to trend, as is the case almost with all stocks. For instance, Home Depot's here now. Caterpillar's finally done it. These two ultimately will, which speaks to um, the market. A handful of names control everything. Now, here, this is key. We know that we're basically close or very close to the prior low. But what's really important is this. We've made new lows here in terms of the percentage of stocks that are still in uptrends. So the internals continue to deteriorate even as the market is sold off, meaning it is not oversold, at least not from what I can see. So here we go. Now this is, gosh, you know this new index. It's got Twitter. It's got Baba and Baidu. It's got, look at this, literally, to the penny, to the penny, to the penny, to the penny, and we are sitting here, the presumption is it's going to break. Now, how can it be that the S&P is identical? Because the S&P is so dominated by those names. And then, in fact, just to do this, and let's end with this, this is the MSCI All Country World Index. German stocks, French stocks, Japanese stocks, U.S. stocks, Canadian stocks, and it is literally to the penny, to the penny, to the penny, to the penny, February 9th low, and we closed on it today. The problem is the bounce was insufficient. There's every indication that we are now going to break trend for the first time in two years. So. Carter's got to come over. Daylight today? Yeah. Come, no on. come on over, Carter. Every Ryan day. will bring the chair every in, please. Day. Ryan. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much. Nice chair job. Okay. So is there any reason to... So you so, believe that the 150... Say everything I just said is nonsense? Sure. No, 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 no. <laughs> it could be. It could <laughs> no, all bounce, no, no, no. right? But, I mean, in terms of the 150-day moving average, yeah. um, you think for world stocks, at least, that could break. For the S&P 500, it would break also? Right. For so the Nasdaq, it would the break also? I guess the market itself is on trend, right down to a trend line right. that's held for two years. But individual stocks, very few of them are in that circumstance. You either have stocks that are still too far above that haven't had a complete sell-off, Netflix, Amazon, or others that are in real freefalls that are well below trend and already. So the optics of, of adding that up gives you a mark that looks as though it's still on trend, but it's really not. You've got stocks that still are vulnerable, meaning they have presumably more to go, Netflix, Amazon, among others, and then stocks that have already rolled over and have really, quite frankly, come apart. 
You know, in the, we were talking about Fang and, and the role of Fang in the sell-off earlier, but now, I mean, it does seem to be extremely broad-based in terms of the selling. So what's your technical take? Has the characteristic of the market changed? Because not just the leadership group has, has deteriorated, but we're seeing massive declines across it's sectors. Across the board. So look at it in this sense. If you take it, the market's performance year to date, there are only two sectors that are outperforming the market, right? Tech and consumer, and consumer only because two names, Amazon and Netflix. So it's, it's really a very thin sort of proposition. So Carter, sometimes there's symmetry in markets. Yeah. And so we have that decline from January to February, rally back, now we're in another decline. If I take that decline and just measure and say, you know, it's gonna do 100% decline, right? The same amount of distance, you get about 24, 63 or so. If you say it's gonna do 1.5 times, you get 2,300. Is there anything in your work that supports those numbers that says maybe that's a turning point and investors should be looking to buy? It's funny, I'm coming in the middle of those two. I think 2,400 plus minus, and it depends on the, how you get there, right? A one-day collapse is often the setup for a reversal. If you just deteriorate over weeks and weeks and weeks and stall and roll and never show any life, then it can just work lower over time. Let me ask something. You have that, that chart with five times or so mm -hmm. that it hit, the, hit that trend line. Right. Wasn't the, the, any of those prior times the same scenario you're talking about, about a few leaders being way high and a few others falling down? And what, what makes to, this Not time to this different? extent, right? I mean, you had at other periods, like the, the financials were doing very well. Now financials are a little bit dodgy. Industrials, post-election. And in this instance, now we've got almost, well, it's broadly participated on the downside. Put it that way, yeah. All right, Carter, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for your help today. Carter Braxton worth of Cornerstone Macro on the charts love, for love us. Him. Is he coming back in hour two? Uh, I'm Can not sure. Guys... We'll see. Oh, be such <laughs> TVTs, isn't it? Uh, what do we do today? Well, biotech we're going to talk about, but I will say that some of these stocks that we have talked about, for example, Wynn Resorts, I think it actually held up pretty well today and was a miserable tape. I think... We did what we call that thing when we go over to the, to the smart pitch, board and I, the power pitch, pitch right? Mm -hmm. And we pitched that, and I still believe in that. So if anything sticks out to me on a day like today, it's the relative strength of WYNN. What did you do today, Karen? I didn't do much today, but tomorrow, sort of what I'm looking to do is probably sell some puts. Certainly if we open down lower, I'll probably sell some puts. And there's a couple of things that I'm looking at. I, I like Citibank. I do like GM. I just, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the very short term. But I do think at some of these levels, I mean, even to me, Google, I like at this level. I've owned it all the way up. Uh, you know, it's been painful for months. But if you look at the valuation of Google, it is ridiculous. This is not an Amazon-type valuation or a Netflix-type valuation. This is like 12 times EBITDA, right? I mean, that's crazy. Well, for me, I just played bullfighter and got out of the way. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what you do in this market. That being said, I am looking for a place to buy. And maybe it's 2400 like Carter was saying, somewhere between 2400 and 2300 We're going to get one or two of those days where you have a spike down, big reversal, high volume. That's the day BK will be buying. Yeah, so I've had three shorts on for the last month and a half or so, QQQ, IWM, and SPY. SPY and QQQ have been most convicted on. You have to trim a little bit on a day like today if you're playing from the short side um, because we did stop at those trend lines um, but the IWM I've taken off I'm out I don't like the relative strength there I was early in that one I got bailed out so to me I'm just focused on QQQ on rallies and spy on rallies 
Coming up, it is a biotech bloodbath. The group sinking nearly 4% today as momentum stocks get crushed. We'll tell you which traders are buying the dip. Plus, it is the battle of tech CEOs Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook exchanging harsh words as they go head-to-head. We'll bring you the comments ahead all of Wall Street talking. And later, Tesla shares in reverse. The stock getting slammed down 35% from its 52-week highs. And Elon Musk's tweets might be making it even worse. We will explain. You're watching a very special edition of Fast Money live from Times Square in New York City. We've got much more fast for you right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time now for a buzzkill. Take a look at the Nasdaq Biotech ETF, the IBB, down more than 4% today. Some of the names dragging the index lower include Alkermes, plunging 20% after the FDA refused to review its depression drug. Regeneron, Gilead, Biogen also significantly lower in today's session. So with biotech having its worst day since Brexit, Buying opportunity or more pain ahead, Dan? Well, I think for a lot of, you know, like these guys were talking about looking for valuations. There's obviously some pretty decent valuations there. Let's go over the XBI chart. That one to me has come right back down to that uptrend that's been in place. And that one has a lot of pretty reasonable valuations versus, let's say, some in the IBB. Um, you know, but to me, if you put that chart up there, there was a massive double top at 98 in the XBI. So, to, you, you know, you want to see how it acts at these technical levels here. But you know you're going to continue to get the fundamental news on a single stock basis. And you also know that this is a sector that is in the crosshairs of Washington. We've seen it in the last couple months. It's in the crosshairs, but it hasn't been in the crosshairs for quite some right. I think there are other fish to fry right now. But I think, to me, the day was the tape. Number one, and Alchemy is number two. The stock was down 22%. It's not a small stock. You get a, a refusal to file letter from the FDA. Never a good thing. You don't want to hear from them. It's like getting something from the IRS. Well, they're Generally saying like, you've you got to do, there's not enough data, and you've got to go back and yeah, do it not again. Good, that means they're going to have to restate earnings, right. probably, or we're going to have to re-give earnings for 18. None of this is a good thing. Traded huge volume today, and there is a big short interest. That stock's going to remain under pressure, but it should not, in my opinion, drag the rest of the space down. I'm sort of concerned about the space, given what's going on in the healthcare space and the PBMs and the HMOs and all of this kind of merger activity. How can there not be tremendous pressure on pricing? Mm -hmm. Right. I think is that what's driving? I don't know. Maybe it's not the sole driver, but how can how can that be a good thing? Still ahead, the Bitcoin bear market raging on as we head toward the 15th tax deadline. Uh, And the IRS has you shaking your crypto boots. Don't worry. Brian Kelly will give his top Bitcoin tax tips. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC, first in business worldwide. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. As shares of Tesla crash, what's CEO Elon Musk doing? I got a joke too. Yep, telling jokes. But shareholders aren't laughing, and there could be more pain ahead. We'll explain. Plus... Hello, this is Guy Adami. How may I help you? Yeah, we're taking your calls on the red phone on this big market sell-off. So call us, 1-800-743-CNBC. Talk soon. Welcome back to Fast Money. It is not just the broader market that's taking it on the chin. How about Tesla's week from hell? That picture, you see a CEO, Elon Musk, holding a sign that says bankrupt or actually bankrupt was tweeted by Musk himself as an April Fool's joke. But given how things have been going with Tesla, we can't help but wonder how much of a joke it might turn out to be. Musk's tone-deaf tweets aside, the automaker has been plagued with controversy over its autopilot system following a fatal crash, a recall of its Model S sedans, and even more production issues. All this within the past week. Shares of Tesla plunged as much as 7% on Monday amidst the chaos. The stock is now down 29% from 2018 highs. So are the tweets a sign that Tesla is now unraveling? And what, if anything, 
should the board be doing about it, Brian? Well, I'm not sure what the board should be doing, but if you're an investor, you have to be in this and say, what I've always called this is a venture capital deal. What I've meant by that is you're investing in something that's always going to need to do another funding round. Now, in a situation like this, you have to ask yourself, will there be another funding round? Will they be able to get that funding? I think yes. When you look at the big holders, the big holders of this are in there for a 10-year time frame. They're saying that Tesla is not a car company. If it was a car company, it would actually trade at some reasonable valuation. They're saying this is a disruptive tech company that not only is going to disrupt cars, it's also going to disrupt the electric grid, decarbonize the electric grid. It's also going to de- uh, disrupt the housing market. So a lot of different things going on in this, and the bigger holders understand that. The question is, what price will that financing be at? Maybe this is enough uh, to do that, but I think ultimately there will be another round of findings that people will be satisfied. I think the point on the holders is an interesting and important one because a lot of the institutional base had gone in on at levels that are much even lower than where we are here. So they're still whole and probably therefore yeah, not, right. not I, going I, to I think sell it's also important to remember that in every fundraising, Elon Musk has actually participated on the buy side, not on the sell side, every single time. And also through, since 2014, this stock has sold off from a peak to a trough at least 30% on every year over the last four years. 2017 was the only year that it didn't. So where are we right now? You said 30%? Fine, whatever. You know, I mean, this is the sort of name, if people really do have that time horizon, you're happy to see these sorts of sell-off. You're happy to see sentiment get really bad. It overshot on the upside last year at some point. It may do so on the downside, but I suspect this not stock is not going to be below 200 anytime soon. What's up with Elon Musk, though? I mean, the joke on April Fool's, for a lot of investors who are feeling a lot of pain out there, that wasn't very Tone funny, death. particularly when all the talk on Wall Street is whether or not this company can get a funding round done. Uh, and then on top of it today, you see him engage in a series of tweets, tweeting at various publications saying, why didn't you cover all the recalls of the other auto companies that have happened over the past year? Why do you just cover Tesla for the auto recall? You know, things like that. He, he's, on, he's on Twitter and tweeting back at all these people. That like almost like in a, a rage. And a waste of his time. Clearly, a there's a lot time. to do at the company, right? So I don't get why he's doing that. That seems ridiculous. Hopefully, it's a sideshow. Interestingly, a year ago, March 17th of last year, they did a convert. The stock was right where it is now, right? And they were able to just, I mean, they, they could have done probably multiples of what they raised last year. And they did that at like two and three eighths. Mm-hmm. Coupon with, you know, this, uh, and, uh, stock conversion at 328. They could do that again. I think the market's still open. I agree with BK. I think they should do it very soon, right away. They couldn't do it at that price still, but I think they should. And maybe he knows. I mean, Musk obviously knows when they're going to try to do it. A, a, but maybe he knows he can get that done. This bankruptcy thing is ridiculous. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he actually tweeted about it, too, <laughs> the, bankruptcy, the bankruptcy joke. He said, well, oh. why would I tweet about something that is even a possibility? You tweet about it because it's not. Right. Sigh. You prefer not to have your CEO out there <laughs> yeah. tweeting yeah, like yeah. this. I suspect when, he's an eccentric guy. I suspect this is kind of a natural way for him. You just don't want him out there tweeting. For more on Tesla's hellish week and what it could mean for the embattled electric car maker, let's bring in Fast Money friend Gene Munster from Loop Ventures. He joins us from Minneapolis. Gene, good to have you with us. Um, I'm Lisa. You wrote that your patience um, is being tried with Tesla. So where do you stand right now? I'm still a believer. And I think what Brian and Dan said really sums up how I feel about it. 
is that this company is uniquely positioned. Their mission statement is to accelerate the globe's adoption of renewable energy. This has uh, little long-term to do about a car, more to do about energy capture, storage in the batteries, and then your home, and then ultimately using the vehicle. So I'm still there, Melissa, irritated by what uh, Elon Musk did over the weekend, as I can imagine the investors were uh, also irritated, but I'm still a believer. Why should you be irritated? I mean, shouldn't it be up to the board to say something to Elon Musk? Or are there too many board members who have some sort of connection to Elon Musk? I mean, a couple of them sit on the SpaceX board. One of the board members is his cousin. I mean, you know, the board has been in question in the past in terms of the ties to Elon Musk. Shouldn't they step in and say, you know what? Maybe now's not the time to do stuff like that. I think you have to get some sense about how big of a personality Elon Musk is at Tesla. Uh, my interactions with people close to the company is this is a larger-than-life uh, figure, and he really uh, inspires people to try to walk through walls. And so I think that's part of the reason why the board doesn't do anything. I think in some ways that they probably look up to him as well. So they're going to let Elon be Elon, and he's going to make mistakes as he did over the weekend. But I think that it doesn't change that he's still the right person for the, the job, ultimately, and that what he is shepherding the company through is a lot of the same pain that other uh, automakers are going to have to go through around this move to batteries and autonomy and ramping production around that. And so I think that uh, I think that's probably why you get this dynamic. Gene, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. If, it, if the auto, part, the car production part of the company isn't really so much the story, why the focus then? People really do seem to care that they're missing production again and again and again. Do you not care about that? That is the one thing that Elon Musk needs to change, is that he uh, still puts out these targets that they can't hit and haven't hit. And they're going to struggle, and they're going to get to 2,000, exiting the, uh, the a weekly run rate of Model 3 is at around 2,000 vehicles per week. It was 2,500 was their target. But that's one thing that a CEO can do. He would probably say the reason why he throws out those big targets is to inspire his people to try to reach for them. But there is a level where you can't just keep missing these targets. This will be the third quarter in a row where uh, Tesla has missed their Model 3 production number. And so I think that is one thing that he should change. But I don't think it changes this story is that it's fascinating to look at these news events over the past week. But that can quickly take your eye off the bigger picture, which this company is still exceptionally well positioned for what's going to be a massive trans uh, uh, transformation around transportation. Gene, where do the holders of this stock start to get concerned, in your opinion? The holders of this name have been steadfast in their belief. Is there a price, in your opinion, where they start to think maybe we just got this one wrong? My sense is there's two camps. I mean, this is one, it's going to be a fun story to watch, too, because there's such divided camps and have good arguments on both sides. Obviously, the one is that they're going to run out of cash, and the other is that they're going to be this transformative company. As far as where the shareholders are concerned, my conversations with them are is that they believe that even if they're wrong, that there is still some bid to buy Tesla has been much talked about at a lower valuation. Current market cap's $42 billion. If you knock 20% off that, that's a $33 billion market cap, that that's probably like a fire sale type of a price for Tesla if Apple or Waymo from Google would want to buy this. And so I think that has been kind of the guiding principle around these shareholders is that they know that there's some form of a backstop in the terms of M&A. All right, Gene, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much. Gene Munster of Loop Thank Ventures. You.
Good to see you, Gene. All right, I think that's an interesting the the put in the stock. Well, it is. I mean, back in 2013, it was pretty widely reported the Google guys were going to buy it. They had a handshake deal with them. And don't forget this, that the Saudi crown prince is going to Silicon Valley this week. He's supposedly to meet with Elon Musk. They're making massive, massive investments. I could see that as a diversification away from the oil trade a little bit, maybe. I don't know. What did you make of the price action here? Tim Seymour said this one called good for Tim. The price action was miserable. I mean, yeah. when I'll say it again, I thought 280 would hold. It didn't. But now, in my opinion, how you trade the stock is you buy it on a break above 280. Otherwise, I think you got to wait for it to trade sub two. So right here, I think you're just sub flipping two. coins. If you go back wow. and look, 195 or so was, yeah. a, was a pretty significant level. Coming up, as the Facebook fallout continues, Mark Zuckerberg snapping back at criticism from Apple CEO Tim Cook. We will hear the latest takedown in tech's war of words. And later, tax season is here, and even if you're a Bitcoin billionaire, you still got to pay your taxes to Uncle Sam. So BK is breaking down your top tax tips. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tax season is always a daunting time of the year, but it is especially frightening for crypto investors who traded the crypto craze at the highs in December. Seema Modi's at the crypto desk with all the details. Hi, Seema. Melissa, that's right. Experts say ahead of tax day, some retail investors are selling their cryptocurrency holdings to account for the capital gains they owe on last year's profits. If you're preparing for your return, it's important to know that the IRS labels Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as property, not as currency. And if you simply bought and sold Bitcoin in 2017, then the steps taken to file taxes on your holdings is similar to if you held stocks. For example, record your transactional history. This data includes when you bought Bitcoin, the spot price, and what date you sold it at. That will determine whether it's a short or long-term capital gain. Once that's taken care of, you fill out the 8949 form and a Schedule D. Any expenses accrued from account maintenance can potentially be deducted. Keep in mind, you may be taxed as high as 39% depending on your income bracket. Now, while the guidance from the IRS on cryptocurrencies has been limited, you could be subject to penalties like a sizable fine or a deficiency notice if you do not declare your holdings. In 2016, the IRS requested records from cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase from 2013 to 2015 for Bitcoin holders and found that less than 1,000 people reported their Bitcoin gains. Melissa? All right. Thank you, Seema. Seema Modi. Well, if your cryptos had you freaking out this tax season, BK has got some tips to make sure you're in much better place for next year. It's time for a special tax crypto class. Take it away, Beeks. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about next year because this year it's already over. You're going to have to pay your taxes. But let's talk about next year. What happened this year had this big ramp in December. People had a lot of profits. They took those profits. Now we're down for the first quarter. And all of a sudden you're saying, where am I going to get that money from? Well, let's take a look at what you should do going forward. We know this is well it's the last at class. We know that there's going to be some taxes to pay. Number one, as you're trading this year, take 30%. Do it maybe once a month, once a quarter. Take 30% of those profits and put it aside in a savings account. You know that that's going to be roughly where your taxes are. Could be a little higher, could be a little lower, but at least you have some side cash on there. Again, very volatile asset class. Number two, to realize crypto to crypto trades are taxable. So that means if you take Bitcoin and you buy Ethereum with your Bitcoin, that's a taxable event. A lot of people thought that perhaps only when you take U.S. dollars and buy crypto, then you can buy Bitcoin and Ethereum. That isn't taxable. It actually is a taxable event. At least that's the guidance that I've been giving. So that's very conservative. Better to be that way. And then finally, something that Seema actually mentioned, 
monitor your short and long-term capital gains. Remember, the tax rates are going to be different. So if you hold something for over a year, you're going to have a lower tax rate than if you're trading it. So as you're buying and selling this year and as you're trading, take that into account when you're thinking about selling something. Do I want to hold this for the next year? Is this a place to sell it? And what is my tax liability going to be? What's the difference going to be? So those three things as you're trading crypto this year should keep you going. BK. Yes. Let me ask you a question. Since so many of the holders of Bitcoin are outside of the U.S., do you, I, I'm a little, I'm thinking that the, the weight on, B, on Bitcoin's price isn't tax related. People have to pay taxes. Are those related at all, do you I, think? I think there's part of it. Part of it is definitely tax-related selling. You also have had uh, the Telegram ICO, which is a kind of the poster child. That's about $2 billion that otherwise maybe would have gone into Bitcoin that has gone into this ICO. So I think that's also weighing on. So the less buyers, some more sellers, lower price. All right. Thanks to that Beaks yep. crypto class. All right. Coming up. This year's next big unicorn is about to make its public debut. Spotify's direct listing is tomorrow. We'll talk to a top venture capitalist who says he can't wait to buy the stock. Plus, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, Tim Cook going head to head over Facebook's privacy scandal. But who do you think the traders think is right? They will weigh in. And that is next. We've got much more fast right after this. We're looking at every app in detail. What is it doing? Is it doing what it's saying it's doing? Is it meeting the privacy policy that they're stating, right? And so we're always looking at that. Um, should we raise the bar even more? We're always looking at improving and raising the bar. Uh, but, but we do carefully review police. each app and police now. And we don't subscribe to the view that you have to let everybody in that wants to, or if you don't, you don't believe in free speech. That was Apple CEO Tim Cook taking a swing at Mark Zuckerberg on Recode's Revolution MSNBC special last week, criticizing the Facebook CEO as a social media giant faces an intensifying privacy scandal. But Zuckerberg wasn't about to let Cook off the hook. Here's what he had to say in a podcast interview today with Vox's Ezra Klein. I find that argument that if you're not paying that somehow we can't care about you to be extremely glib right? and, and not at all aligned with the truth. Well, these comments setting up a showdown between the two tech titans. In one corner, we've got Tim Cook, a veteran of the tech world with a net worth of $1.3 billion since Cook took the helm. Apple has soared 212%, now sits at a staggering market cap of $844 billion. In the other corner, we've got the young, maybe a bit hipper, Mark Zuckerberg out Wayne Cook with a net worth of just over $62 billion. IPO, the stock is up about 309%, has a market cap of $450 billion. So who do you side with in this battle of the tech titans, Stan? It's a pretty easy one. You go with the hardware and you go with Apple. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, Apple used to catch a lot of grief about what they would let on their platform and what they wouldn't. And I think they have a lot of power here. So to me, I think one thing you're forgetting, or you didn't hear what Zuckerberg said right before that, that he subscribes to the Bezos uh, you know, yes, create, yeah. that, that we want to charge as little as possible rather than more. I don't think there's any doubt right now that the world believes that you are their product and they're trying to extract as much from you any which way they can. You own Facebook? Mm -hmm. You own Alphabet? Right. I, uh, you want yeah. to own more Alphabet maybe? Does I do want to own more. But does this worry you? Well, it, it does worry me. I mean, I think that Facebook has a lot of bad stuff priced in. Could there be way more bad stuff to come? That's mm -hmm. possible. 
I do think it's a really powerful model. I wish that he weren't getting attacked from all sides, but they haven't handled this as well as they've, they could have. Um, I'm not selling it here. I, I don't know. I, let me just get to your point, though. When you said they want to sell for as little as possible... Well, he was referring, he was quoting uh, Jeff Bezos in terms of, you know, companies have to work really hard. They're saying their business model is to so charge their customers, customers as little less. as possible yeah, rather than to charge you as Apple is trying to charge yeah. as much as possible yes, for their okay. product. Right. No, that that's more troubling to me that, that Apple, I, I don't I, I wasn't a fan of Cook sort of attacking uh, Zuckerberg on this because you never know what he could be facing at some point down the road. It wouldn't shock me if they have some sort of situation that isn't wildly dissimilar from this. On the same day, Karen said she was the most worried she's been in quite some time. I think that was, I think that was the day that Roger McNamee was here, and I'm, now I'm paraphrasing, but he said something along the lines of Facebook was uh, basically corporate malfeasance. Yes. I think that was the phrase that he used. And the stock was trading 184, and he talked about, you know, he was really concerned about the stock. He's been right. Stock has turned over tremendous volume over the last couple of weeks, but there's no bounce which leads me to believe maybe there's another flush to the downside. Oh, it didn't trade badly today, though, relative to the... Would you be a, take a flyer here? No, I would not. Mm -hmm. I, I think they've all got problems. I think Apple and Facebook and Google all face this idea of peak centralization. It's a longer-term type of view, but I think once you lose the trust of your customer, look at what happened with the banks. They lost the trust of their customer in 2008. And that's not to say there's a crisis or anything. I don't want to compare the two, but I'm just saying once you lose the trust of your customer, you have an awful hard time getting it back. All right. Still ahead, did today's sell-off have you running scared? We are actually sticking around for the 6 p.m. hour to take your phone calls live on the air. So stay tuned. Plus, as Spotify gets ready for its public debut, will it follow Dropbox's lead and be the next unicorn to steal Tech's thunder? We'll talk to a top investor. Stick around. Welcome back to Fast Funny. Spotify getting ready to uh, press play on their Wall Street debut. Our Bob Bassan is at the NYSC with everything you, you can expect tomorrow from this direct listing. Bob. Hi, Melissa. Spotify will begin trading tomorrow at Citadel Securities right below me. We've highlighted how unusual this direct listing is right now. No new shares are being floated. Remember that. That's the key thing. All the shares being sold will come from existing shareholders. And there is no traditional roadshow. They did hold an investor day that was live streamed. However, there is no underwriting here. There's no bank that's going to be buying shares and then selling it to the public. And finally, there's no book. No one is soliciting orders to buy and sell shares at the open. And essentially, there's no lockup. Almost all 178 million shares, almost all, will be available to trade. And what this means is initial trading is likely to be perhaps more volatile than usual. Here's the questions I want, three of them. First, how will you set the price on this? So the opening price will be determined by orders from broker-dealers. But remember, there's no bank that's under any obligation to stabilize the price. There's no underwriter. In the secondary market, it's traded between $48 to $125, but it's likely priced toward the higher end of the range. That's everybody's guess. Morgan Stanley, by the way, has been hired as an advisor and is supposed to provide a reference price early in the morning that will be based on trading in the gray market as well as fundamental. Nobody knows if that will matter or not. Again, uncharted waters here. Second, what will happen once the shares start trading? You can argue that because no new shares are being issued, it's a well-known company, strong retail interest, the price should go up. But you could also argue that the large number of shares available to trade may suppress any price gains. Again, we don't know. Finally, how about the open? When's that going to happen? Don't expect it to be early. The price discovery process is likely, likely to take a long time. I'm betting 
Melissa will be eating lunch by the time it starts trading. It definitely is not going to be 9.45 a.m. like most IPOs. Back to you. All right. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Let's bring in an early Airbnb and Pinterest investor, Rick Heitzman, founder of First Smart Capital, an early stage VC firm. Rick, good to see you. Good to see you again. Um, you would like to buy Spotify shares, correct? Would you buy tomorrow or do you wait? I'll buy, buy tomorrow. I feel like there's not going to be much supply of shares. Those shares are going to come on tomorrow. And I agree that it'll happen probably closer to lunchtime than breakfast time tomorrow as there's limited supply in the market. So I'd get up early, put your order in early, and anticipate that the uh, supply and demand will drive up price later in the day. So, Rick, you're a fundamental investor. What do you see the opportunity? Obviously, a lot of investors have been focused on Netflix's business model. You know, one of the knocks on Spotify is that they don't have the gross margins that Netflix has. What do you see as the opportunity there? I think over time you're going to get to those margins. You're going to, it's the same dynamic. You're reselling content from someone else. But you have an enormous user base and a really strategic user base. If you think about all the potential buyers of Spotify, it's all the companies with enormous uh, war chests and all the fangs who would love to have those 200 million plus users. You know, we were talking about Dropbox as the other tech unicorn that had just recently gone public. Are you invested in Dropbox? I'm not. You're not. Okay, so here's a question for you. Sure. This is a question that I pose to these traders a lot in terms of would you rather. Oh, I like this game. Rick's going to like Dropbox it. or Spotify, which would, would you rather own? Spotify. I think it's okay. more unique. I think it has a faster user uh, growth base. And over time, it's going to be harder to replicate that growth base. A- Apple threw everything at it. They threw Beats at it. They threw Apple Music at it. And it only accelerated the Spotify growth. How closely as a VC guy are you looking at this in terms of future exits? I mean, do you think that this could actually set off a wave of direct listings? I mean, it could save millions of dollars in fees. It's setting up, it's, we're thinking about it also in terms of liquidity. What does pricing mean tomorrow? What does pricing mean in terms of price stability? What does that mean in terms of future lockups, which is big for early investors thinking about liquidity down the road? The direct listing advocates are saying price will stabilize quicker, There'll be more liquidity at each different uh, volume threshold sooner than what you might see in a normal IPO. So I think a lot of early investors are looking at this as, as a case study. All right. Rick, great to see you. Thank Good you for your you. time. Thank Rick you. Heitzman. What do, you, uh, what do you think? What does this say about uh, you know, the NYSE being able to get this unique kind of listing first out? I don't know. I, don't, I yeah. mean, how valuable are these relative? I mean, maybe it's more the bankers that are... That are being shut out more. Yeah, than the that, bankers are being shut out. That would be more problematic, I guess. I don't know. It's interesting. I, I'm very curious how this trades. I'd probably be at the sidelines, but it's interesting. It's important for the It's extraordinarily important, important for the New York Stock Exchange. You know, they've had a series of, I don't want to say missteps, but they haven't had the greatest hits album. It's not like the Eagles' greatest hits. I think the greatest mm-hmm. selling album of all time on that. I yeah, know I was you're just a fan. Thinking that <laughs> we were just talking about Spotify. That being said, they better do something. It better be extraordinary tomorrow. It better be seamless for the NYSE. All right. Well, that does it for us for our first hour. First hour of our special coverage here on Fast Money. Stick around, though. We've got another jam-packed hour coming up right after this short break. Stay tuned. Another harrowing day for the markets. Traders were already primed once we broke the 200-day moving average. You see the market drop down. As a sea of red takes over Wall Street. We've seen a broad sell-off in the tech sector of biotech. A big drag today as well. A lot of disappointments there. And with the Dow now negative on the year, investors are asking some tough questions. What's behind the sell-off? How long will it last? And what do I do with my money? 
CNBC's special coverage of the markets begins right now. And it was indeed a dramatic day on Wall Street. You're watching CNBC's special coverage of today's market sell-off. I'm Melissa Lee. A very warm welcome to all of you usual Mad Money viewers. Jim Cramer is off tonight. And with all the market turmoil, the Fast Money team, we're going to stick around to help you make sense of it all. Helping me to do that are some familiar faces to Fast viewers. Dan Nathan of Riskreversal.com, Brian Kelly of Brian Kelly Capital, Karen Feinerman of Metropolitan Capital, and Guy Adami of Private Advisors Group. You know the markets better than they do. And tonight, we're also taking your calls. So dive Dial in 1-800-743-CNBC. Any and all questions about the markets, we will try to answer them. The phone lines are hot, so be sure to call in right now. But for now, we start off with the sell-off. The Dow falling at one point more than 750 points at the lows of the session, closing down 458. The Nasdaq, which is the best-performing index this year, now negative on the year. In all 11 S&P sectors, we're in the red today as the S&P 500 fell more than 2%. So, you're a retail investor at home. You see the headlines. You open up your statement. You check it online. It's not pretty. So what do you do right now? Guy. Yeah, and I want to be dismissive. It's obviously been a pretty significant move to the downside over the last month, month and a half. But to me, the only thing that's remarkable about what we're seeing is it hasn't happened sooner. I mean, this is a normal sell-off in, the, in a market that's basically been going from the bottom left to the upper right in terms of a chart. In other words, it's been going straight up for a number of years. And I think the only thing, again, remarkable is we haven't seen it sooner. So if you're watching at home, this should be happening. It feels bad. But I don't think there's anything out of the norm in terms of what we're seeing. What would be your advice to the retail investor right now? Well, you know, we, we have a saying in my office. It's, it's the opposite of don't just stand there, do something, right? Most people freak out in this situation. Don't just do something, stand there. Relax, calm down. We've already, as Guy said, we've already had this decline. You know, you don't want to be the person who's selling the low. If you look at it as a longer-term type of thing, you have longer-term horizon, these are the places where you want to start looking to buy in here. You don't want to be buying at the top and, and getting, you know, fear and getting in. But here, where it feels terrible and it feels horrible, that's the place you want to start looking to buy. I don't want to sell the low at the same time. I'm afraid that it's going to go even lower tomorrow in the next day. So, so let me tell you what I think is a little different here. So the last times that we had bouts of volatility to the downside, it was the summer of 2015. We had a low in August, and then we had a really quick bounce like we had last month. And then we had a retest of that low in September, and we bounced, and then we were off to the races. And then again in January and February of 2016, we had the same sort of situation. The second time it retested, that was it. It was a double bottom, and it kept on going higher. That's a nice technical formation right there. Here's the problem with right now in the setup right here this week is that we are now back at that prior low from February 9th. It's really important what happens over the next couple of days. If we break that February 9th low, even if it's orderly like today, it wasn't a panic sort of selling, then we could have a top in place. When you think about how much higher we are than 2015 and then again in 2016, and then when you, give in, when you think about what are some of the headwinds right now, you could have yourself a top could be in the market for 2018. That doesn't mean we're going to crash, but it could mean that we bang around at lower levels. Does in this here. feel worse than maybe at other points in time, only in that, uh, you know, it had been a long time since we had a correction. But on top of it, there are a number of different issues facing the market. There's the Facebook data privacy scandal, which is hitting all of technology. There are tariff concerns, you know, hitting the markets more broadly. I mean, there are all the, in the Fed raising interest rates. There are a series of things to be concerned about. Right. There are. However, there's a number of really good things going on, too. I mean, I'm a long-term investor, you know, and I'm also a long investor, meaning I always own stocks. There's never a time when I say, oh, I want out of the market. 
So my bias is always to, all right, what can I buy to own for the long term? So in days like today, as Brian said, it feels absolutely awful. And you've got to remember that psych psychology is not your friend. Your gut intuition will lead you to do exactly the wrong thing. It feels really good to buy things when they're up high and everybody owns them and, wow, that feels great. It really feels bad to buy them when they just go down so much every day. But that's when you have to buy them. That's when they present the best, the best risk-reward. Right? So that's where we are right now. Does it, could it get worse? Absolutely it could get worse. But I look at it as, all right, if I had a fresh dollar today and I own nothing, would I start buying here? Absolutely. So I would buy names like Google here. You could always find there's you know, this story, that story, or maybe the EU is going to charge them some percentage of revenue. There's a lot of stuff that you're never going to have a perfect time. Anytime it feels like, oh, this is the perfect time, that is a <laughs> lot not. closer to being the not perfect time. So, you know, calm down, just take a breath. There are opportunities to buy some things that are good value. So Dan mentioned levels. So obviously everybody wants to talk about the Dow Jones, but that's obviously just a handful, so 30 to be exact. Mm -hmm. The S&P 500 is exactly that, 500. So Dan mentioned the low that we saw in February. That low was roughly 25.35. The S&P today closed at 25.80. So we're roughly 2% away from Dan's level. That's what you should be looking at. The good news, though, is we're about to enter an earnings season where, depending on who you ask, it could be record in terms of earnings growth. So I think that sort of gives you hope over the next couple of weeks that maybe we can flush out to the downside and get reinvigorated by earnings, which should start in earnest yeah, two weeks but, from now. But, guys, that's not a layup. I mean, think about this. You know, on February 2nd, Apple reported their fiscal Q1 earnings, and the stock went down 4.5% the next day. Why? They missed their iPhone number. They're going to go into a seasonally weak period. I just think there's a lot of names right now that we really could be banging around where that maybe all of a sudden, Mel, we were just talking about this in the last hour, maybe there's some of these features of the economy, not the market, that are starting to weigh on valuations a little bit. At one point, everyone was really excited about profit margins being at all-time highs. What if we do get in a trade war? That's the sort of thing that would suppress margins right. and valuations would come in. And those questions are going to be raised on those conference calls. I mean, all these companies mm -hmm. have conference calls to talk to Wall Street after they report the earnings. And even if they post great first quarter earnings, the line of questioning in that, those conference calls are going to be very telling in terms of how those companies are managing expectations. And if we're entering, entering what has been traditionally a seasonally weak period, at least for technology, which is the biggest part of the market, the second quarter, how are they going to manage those expectations? They'll probably be conservative. They're going to be very conservative because the answer is we don't really know, right? Is, is what's been going on, particularly with the trade talks, a negotiating tactic? Or are we actually going into a trade war? We don't know what the answer is. And, you know, I would say if it is simply a negotiating tactic, and it's entirely possible over the next 60 to 90 days we see some kind of progress on this, then the market will go higher. I don't know if it'll, it'll make a new high. I mean, Dan might be right that we've seen the highs for 2018. I don't want to make a call on that. But all I know is when things sell off and all that bad news is priced in there, there are opportunities here. And even if we don't make a new high, there are ways to make money or at least ways to start was there a stock or two you're looking at today specifically? No, you know what? I still like the ones that are leading here. So Netflix, Amazon, even though they've all they've been in this kind of the crosshairs here, but I still want to look at those because they were the leaders even when the market was going down. Those stocks led. So you know, as they come down, I want to start looking at those. Well, if you're a retail investor out there, there is no better voice to listen to than our next guest. Lizanne Saunders is a chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. She's uh, seen and prospered in every type of market you can imagine, so you want to listen to her. So, Liz, it's great to have you with us here on Fast. Um, what do you What do you attribute these market jitters, the volatility to at this point in time? 
So I think there are a number of competing factors, but I really think that, that what unleashed this in late January, early February actually had less to do with all of the fundamental things that we're talking about. A lot of people point to the spike that we got in wage growth for that uh, fairly short period of time, the, the breakout on the upside and the 10-year yield. I actually think that the proximate cause, if you want to call it that back then, was just a sentiment environment that had gotten entirely too frothy. And that really just built in December and January. You saw it in attitudinal measures of sentiment. You saw it in behavioral measures of sentiment. Now the question, though, is whether we have effectively gone from that era, kind of a fear of missing out era, to one where we've washed that uh, froth out. And I'm not quite sure. I certainly don't think that the first leg of this correction did it. I think it's too soon to tell whether the second leg has done it. So what do you tell clients right now to do in the meantime when things are feeling so bad and there's so much market volatility? Do you make moves in your portfolio? Uh, no. First of all, the one thing we always tell investors in an environment like this is that panic is not a strategy. And I'm, I'm fond of saying that neither get in nor get out, to the extent you think that's the way you ought to approach investing, neither get in nor get out is a, uh, an investment strategy. That's gambling on a moment in time, and investing should always be a process over time. And you could apply that same logic to the nature of corrections. Corrections don't tend to be moments in time. They tend to be processes over time. They tend to last, on average, longer than this one has so far, with a bit more pain than this one has so far. But if there's one thing about which I have incredibly high conviction is I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, we came into this year expecting a heightened amount of volatility in light of where we felt we were in the economic cycle with tighter monetary policy, uh, less loose financial conditions, higher inflation, and that the maximum drawdown, that the uh, intraday moves would be bigger. That's what we're getting. Whether this is the bottom, I have no idea. But we are saying that with more volatility comes the ability and opportunity to rebalance more frequently, hopefully to the benefit of long-term portfolio so, success. So how, what would you recommend investors do specifically? Have valuations come down enough in certain sectors of the market to make you say, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but this is what we should be looking at doing right now? So valuations have come down quite a bit, largely because even with the correction, you've still seen the, you know, the denominator in your P.E. equation go up. So in both legs of the correction, you saw P.E.s come down to a greater degree than prices came down. On a forward P.E. basis, we're still a little bit north of long-term median levels. But I'd be very cautious about using valuation, either when it's high or low, as a some sort of market timing tool, because there's literally no correlation between every any variety of P.E. ratio and what the market does in the next year. What we've been telling investors is, number one, you should have a plan. Your allocation should be a function of you as an investor, not what you or anybody else thinks the market's going to do, but your time horizon, risk tolerance. And then use these opportunities to rebalance. And again, what rebalancing does, and I think it's an interesting way to think about this, is you don't have to worry about which person on CNBC has the right market call in the short term. Mm -hmm. Your portfolio tells you when it's time to do something. Your portfolio tells you, okay, you've gotten XX exposure now in X area because of outperformance or relative outperformance, you want to pair that back. And it forces investors to do what we know we're supposed to, right. which is add into weakness and trim into strength. Lizanne, great to have you with the us. Basics. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Lizanne My Saunders pleasure. of Charles Schwab. Um, so BK and Karen had given sort of their shopping list potentially, the things you might want to look at based on your time horizon and what you think are values in the market. What do you think are values in the market? I think right the values now? in the market, I mean, 
Biotech had a big sell-off today for a number of different reasons, none of them all that interesting. And I think, to Dan's point in our earlier show, I mean, they are still clearly in the crosshairs of this administration. But if you look in terms of the science, and if you have a five-year horizon, the valuations in many of the names are compelling. So I would look at Big Cap Pharma and Biotech. Yeah, so I just mentioned because Facebook is really obviously in the crosshairs of it seems like everybody right now. Here's a stock that all of a sudden has become very cheap on its existing expected growth. High teens EPS growth expected this year, 30% growth in sales. If these guys don't have to hire and they don't get regulated and they don't do all this sort of stuff, this is going to be a very cheap stock as it goes lower. So Karen just made something, the point about how do you start buying something on the way down, you dollar cost average. If you've felt like you've missed out on Facebook and you think this is a storm that's going to pass, this is a name at $150 that you start buying on the way down, a quarter position, $150, $140, another quarter, that sort of thing. All right, let's take a look at futures as we head to break. Um, after a day like we saw today, we do want to get this early indication of where stocks could open up tomorrow. Uh, here we have it. This is early again, but so far, we're in the green across the board. We'll see how that pans out throughout the course of the evening. Plus, as the major indices turn negative for the year, a number of widely held stocks are tumbling. We'll give you the names that our panel thinks could be near a bottom. Later, do you have questions about the big market sell-off? We are taking your calls later in the show, so be sure to call in 1-800-743-CNBC. The traders will be standing by with all the answers. We're live at the NASDAQ market site in New York City's Times Square. Do not go anywhere. We've got much more of CNBC's special coverage of the market sell-off right after this. Welcome back to CNBC's special coverage of the market sell-off. And if you're just joining us, it was a brutal day on Wall Street. The Dow falling more than 450 points, now firmly in correction territory, which simply means it's down by more than 10 percent from recent highs. That sell-off has sent a number of widely held stocks, the one you probably own, to key levels. Dom Chu is over at the Plasma here at the NASDAQ to break it all down. Hi, Dom. All right. So, Melissa, as we talk about those names that have really fallen from grace here, it turns out that around three out of every five stocks within the S&P 500 actually hit at least a 52-week high sometime just in 2018. Out of all those stocks, 169 are in that 10% phase or lower, that correction that you refer to. Also, 46 of those stocks are actually down by 20% or more, something some traders refer to as bear market territory. Now, we'll take a look at just some of the names that we're talking about. We'll focus specifically on some of those FANG stocks. Facebook already down 20% from those levels there that it's recent highs. Amazon down 16%, Netflix down 16%, and Google down 15% as well. For these guys, the ones you want to focus on here are obviously these ones, this one, and this one, simply because they are among the top five or six, seven most at least market cap-oriented stocks in the S&P 500, so they have a lot of impact. As opposed to now what's going to happen with the P.E. ratios, we do know that a lot of those earnings estimates haven't changed dramatically, but the prices have come down. So P.E. ratios have now moved a little bit to the downside. Looking at forward P.E., so estimates on the next 12 months, Facebook at its highs was a 28 price-to-earnings stock. Now it's around 20. Amazon, 169, down to 135. Netflix, 110, down to about 90. And then Alphabet, 28 on a forward P.E. basis, down to about 23 now. So as we talk about some of the valuations, they are definitely coming in. The question becomes now whether or not they stay that way or whether these earnings estimates going into this season start to get revised a little bit, guys. That's a fantastic. You know, we do a show at 5 o'clock called Fast Money, and oftentimes yeah, Dominic Chu is too. on with us from the New York Stock Exchange or Englewood Cliffs. From elsewhere. But we never yeah. really know if he's, 
if he's with us or if he maybe he taped something. He's with us tonight. So I'm going to test <laughs> Is he? Let's test him. Dominic Chu, what's your birthday? I am here. Oh, look, he is. <laughs> no, but he didn't answer the he question. He didn't answer. We don't really know if he's here. <laughs> June 6th. I, w I was born in June. so Gemini, I, 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 psycho Gemini. There are two of them. That's you why. you have a real I mean, question for Dom? Or you no, just that was actually to... my question. Maybe Dan Nathan has a real question. All right. For Dom. Okay. Thanks. Thanks. It's good to <laughs> see you, Dom. Thank good to you. see you guys, too. Um, before we talk about these stocks that Dom had mentioned, here's a question, a very important question, particularly when the markets are selling off the way they are. How do you know when a stock is cheap. Karen, how do you know when it's cheap? Okay. Well, one of the things that I look at is what metrics have this stock traded at before? So I look at versus its own history, right? So we keep talking about this PE multiple, which is price divided by the earnings. So I look at a company like a Facebook or which let's use Google because I like that one the most. So we haven't seen earnings multiples in this range for a while. That makes it very attractive to me. I can promise you I will never be able to pick the absolute bottom, but I can tell you that I think if I can buy Google at a P.E. multiple of uh, 21 here, and it's actually even better than that because this is a company with $100 billion of cash, yep. right? So that, that actually makes the P.E. multiple less than what it appears. I think that's a good buy. I think it's an incredibly powerful business. I know that there's some headwinds there. I'm not that concerned about it. Certainly not enough concerned to say, oh, I'm going to sell it and wait for a better time. Right? Yeah. And the other thing, if you already own it like I do, and I try to sell it and wait for a better time, I got to pay taxes, and then I got to know when that better time is. I don't know when that better time is going to be. Yeah. I would add to her valuation, and I would say, if you have a stock that typically, let's just say, trades 5 million shares a day, and there's a way to check that out. If you have a stock that makes a new low on volume that's four or five times normal volume, when valuations are compelling, that might be the market telling, you know what, all the weekends have gotten out. They've basically said, remember Roberto Duran? Mel? No. No? <laughs> what did he say to, what did he say to, to Ray Leonard? Yeah. He said, no moss. The market says okay. no moss at a certain point. Right. Then you know that maybe your stock has become cheap. Uh, you said that you're looking at... Amazon, Netflix. Right. Which How are they cheap even exactly, with the sell-off? Right. So you look at those and you say they have unbelievably high P.E. ratios. So how can you even tell if they're cheap? But here's the thing. When it comes to those stocks, they've never really traded on P.E. ratios. Investors in that are looking, about, looking at the growth. And there's an element of sentiment to it as well. So when I look at something like that, I'm looking for this is where technicals can come into play. You can say, we're a prior support. You don't need to be a massive technical analyst here and do all kinds of ratios. But you can just look back, similar to what Karen's doing, look back and say, where did this stock trade before in price? Where did people buy it before? Where did it break out? And then I want to look back, and so I look at Netflix, I look at Amazon and say, you know, these things still might come down quite a bit, but if they get a little bit lower and they get to support and resistance levels, that's where I want to start looking to buy. Yeah, and I'll just say the sentiment, the word that he just said is really important right now. You know, we can tell in, like, Tesla, the sentiment's really bad. Facebook, the sentiment's really bad. You want to see it get so bad, you can't find an analyst who's willing to recommend it or an investor willing to buy it. And that, if it fits your technical levels, your valuation levels, that's when you probably take a shot. Still ahead, as stocks head lower, what is the Trump administration saying? Well, I head down to D.C. to get the latest on this sell-off. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching CNBC, First in Business Worldwide. Here's what else is coming up on the show. Hello, this is Guy Adami. How may I help you? Yeah, we're taking your calls on the red phone on this big market sell-off. So call us, 1-800-743-CNBC. Talk soon.
Welcome back to CNBC's special coverage of the market sell-off. The Dow falling more than 700 points at the lows of the day, with trade wars with China heating up and those fears slamming the markets. For more, let's get to Eamon Javers for the latest in Washington. Eamon. Yeah, hi, Melissa. The White House not really seeing this as a case of the market focused on fears of the trade war. Peter Navarro, who is in many ways the behind-the-scenes architect of the president's plans on trade internationally here at the White House, was on CNBC earlier today. He said this is a case of the White House having American businesses back. He said ultimately the president's trade policy will be good for the markets, even if it wasn't good today. Here's what he said. Ultimately, uh, I think it's really a good thing for the market that we are doing these kinds of trade actions because what we're, we're, we're trying to do um, with, with this situation is try to get to a place where we have fair and reciprocal trade, balanced trade across nations. That word reciprocal again, you hear that from the president again and again on trade. That's where he wants to get country by country across the board. I also asked the White House uh, what they thought here officially of the market sell-off that we saw late in the afternoon, down more than 700 points at the time I talked to a White House official. Here's what the official told me, saying, uh, we're focused on long-term fundamentals. We're not really reacting to market fluctuations, is what the official called today's stock market activity. So when the market is down, uh, the White House not really keen to talk about it, but last week we saw the president, uh, in fact, eager to talk about it. Here's a tweet the president put out about six days ago uh, on a much better day for the Dow. Uh, he re retweeted a CNBC headline uh, saying that the Dow had posted uh, the third best one-day gain ever. The president tweeting, great news, hashtag make America great again. So when the stock market goes up, they're a little bit more likely to talk about it around here uh, than they are when the stock market goes down. But uh, that's just politics, Melissa. And in terms, of, in terms of this uh, potentially looming trade war, Eamon, we are expected to get the actual list of the goods being targeted sec as part of Section 301, which is basically uh, the administration's efforts to try and get back at China, so to speak, um, for exacting intellectual property from requiring companies, for instance, to give up certain technologies in order to do business in China. Yeah, that's right. We're expecting to see that at some point this week, possibly as early as tomorrow. We'll wait and see when they exactly roll that out. Uh, but one of the questions here is, are we going to get into a tit-for-tat situation where each one of these measures against China uh, causes a backlash from the Chinese? The White House folks I talked to about two weeks ago when all this was beginning said that they didn't expect the Chinese to fire back. Uh, but then we saw on Sunday the Chinese do exactly that. So we'll wait and see whether or not we get into a situation where we go uh, back and forth, back and forth for who knows how long. Melissa. All right. Thank you, Eamon. Eamon Javers joining us from the White House this evening. For more on how the chaos in D.C. is impacting the markets, let's bring in Wells Fargo senior global equity strategist Scott Ryan. Scott, great to have you with us on a day like today. Oh, hey, Melissa. Yeah, it was a wild one. Yeah, quite a wild one. Uh, in terms of the impacts of the tariffs, what, in your view, is the reasonable worst-case scenario? I mean, obviously, the worst-case scenario would be a full-on trade war. But what do you I think, think that, will happen? I think, I think that's a low probability, a very low probability event. I think we're going to see a lot of uh, extreme targeting of tariffs. This is going to be play out really over the next couple of years. It was brought, the topic was brought from the back burner to the front burner. Uh, clearly, the, the administration is going after it. Uh, they're going to be renegotiating and negotiating on a lot of these trade deal, deals that have been uh, in effect for a long time. And I think the thing today, that the, the Chinese retaliation, if you want to call it, you know, that 
that that's you know that's a mini shot over the bow. You know, certainly the administration um, has taken a few shots over the bow, but you know, I, I think I think when it gets right down to it, the the volume of trade between the two countries is obviously huge, and what the tariffs are actually on is pretty small. So I don't think we're going to see a big ex, um, escalation here. I think we're going to see just a lot of renegotiation. A lot of it's been going on behind the scenes. So so I think the bottom line for us is that uh, an all-out trade war is a low probability. You mentioned mini shot across the bow when it comes to what China is unveiling. And that's because this is in response to the steel and aluminum tariffs, which is you know, tariffs part one. Tariffs part two is what Eamon was talking about in terms of what is still to be announced against um, tech goods from China. And so that could be the much bigger sort of shot across the bow, if you will, from China in terms of retaliation. Already with the mini shot, we're hearing rumblings that it is appearing, the impact of tariffs and the overhang is appearing in some of the data and some of the anecdotal data, namely the ISM surveys today, where manufacturers are citing, um, you know, the dampening effect that these tariffs are having. Are you worried at all that we're just sort of we're, we're not really accounting for that overhang impact, the psychological impact, even though the dollar amount may be small? I think the I think there is a psychological overhang, and certainly that would show up in some of these uh, ISM surveys. But but clearly, this intellectual property deal is a big thing, and there's plenty of companies here, really globally, and certainly in the United States. You know, they don't want to go in. They'd love to sell their product into China. Obviously, it's a huge consumer market, and and it will only grow from here. But you know, they're not about to give up their technology and and uh, their rights to that. And so I. I think that's where we're going to see uh, some give here. By the time this is all over and done with, and it's it's not going to be an overnight situation. But you know, the the administration they need to go after this intellectual uh, property problem because it is a huge problem. Um, and it's and and if it if it didn't come to the boiling point now, it certainly would at some point down the road. And for me, I want to address situations like that as soon as possible. All right, Scott, great to see you. Thanks for your time. All right, take care, guys. Scott Wren, Wells Fargo. So here's a question. Is Trump still the stock market president? On up days. I mean, clear, you, <laughs> you saw what Eamon said. I, you know, my biggest problem is, and, you know, I'm, I'm 54 years old, so I've been around for a number of administrations. This is the first time that an administration has used the market as a report card for said administration. That's great when things are going well. But there has to be ramifications when things are not going well. Like we find ourselves now. You can't uh, do day-to-day -day when the market's up 500 points and say MAGA and then say we're in this for the long term when the market's down. That's a problem, and it's only going to get worse if we continue to move to the downside. But, I mean, the notion is that if Trump points to the stock market, if it keeps going down, then maybe he will back off some of the pol policies that may be causing it to go right. down, that there is a sort of a Trump put, if you will, a Trump floor in the market because he will eventually that's, come but, in but, to but do things favorable. What you're going to is the uncertainty that's out there. We don't know exactly, is there a strategy here? Is this a negotiating tactic? What is the strategy? Because it does appear to change rather rapidly uh, depending on what kind of the news flow is. So to me, you know, the best thing for this market is just rip the Band-Aid off. Let's get whatever tariffs are coming. Let's get them in there so we can reprice this and get on with our debt. Well, I agree. Uncertainty is not a good thing. I think even certainty with a bad outcome in some cases is, is better, better than uncertainty right. and an uncertain outcome. I do think, I mean, I'm happy that Larry Kudlow is there. I know he's an excellent voice on, on both 
tariff and reaction in the market, as well as communicating a message. I think that's important. I'm glad that he's there. I, I think, as Guy said, I mean, if you're going to live by the sword, you've got to die by the sword. I hope that some of, he backs off some of these policies, and I think he will. I really do. Still ahead, we've got much more on today's market sell-off. We will be taking your calls in just a few moments. There's still time, though, so call in 1-800-743-CNBC. The traders here will do their very best to answer the questions you've got. Plus, Guy Diamond will break down exactly what you should not do when we see these big market swings. You won't want to miss that. Much more of CNBC's special coverage right after this break. Welcome back to CNBC's special coverage of the market sell-off. Stocks taking investors on a roller coaster ride today. The Dow plunging nearly 759 points at the low, then rebounding 300 points to close at 458. Bob is standing by on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, so, Bob, what are the early indications about how we may open tomorrow? Positive, uh, Melissa. Now, remember, we had, a, despite the down day, we had a 15-point rally in the S&P in the last half hour of trading. That is continuing now. I watched the E-mini contract. That's 50 times the S&P 500. Uh, that's up about $8. We closed 25.75. We're around 25.83. So that's up eight points. Remember, 15-point rally in the last half hour. Similar story uh, for the uh, E-mini Dow futures. Closed at 23.552. We're up 70, almost 80 points as well there. So it's looking positive right now. Now, crude oil had an ugly day. It was down more than $2. Uh, it's opening slightly lower. That opened an hour ago. 6301 was the close down a little bit right now. Gold had a great day, up, what, $15 or so. That's also trading down slightly. Close at 1346.90 right now. Remember, we're waiting for the Asian exchange that will open in a few hours. Uh, Japan at 8 o'clock. Hong Kong at 9 p.m. Keep an eye on that as well. Melissa, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Bob Pisani. Well, since this special tonight is all about you out there, we are going to be taking some phone calls. Our first caller is Julian from Georgia. So, Julian, welcome to the show. What's your question? Hey, guys. So my question is, for new investors like myself who are coming in late to the bull market, um, I'm wanting to know, is now a good time to dive in? Or do you guys think this correction still might have some more legs to go with that as well? Or just trying to see your perspective on for a new investor like myself, is now the perfect opportunity. Um, for stocks that I've been looking at since November, should I jump on those now? Karen, you want to take sure. Julian's question? Hi, Julian. Thanks for calling. Hey. So that is the question, right? That's the million-dollar question. So for me, I, I feel like, you know what? I am never going to pick the exact time. So you shouldn't expect to pick the exact time either. Nobody can really do that with great accuracy. So don't try for that. So instead, what I would do, if you have some money that you're looking to invest, Dan mentioned it earlier, dollar cost averaging. You buy a quarter position or so, just to pick an example. And then over the coming months, you put the next quarter, the third quarter, the fourth quarter to work. You'll never pick the bottom, but you'll never have an average price at the top either. And that sort of allows you to take the emotion away from investing. Because this is very emotional. When markets move this much, it's scary. And often being scared is the best time to, at least for me, start to move forward. So that's what I would do. All right. Julian, thanks a lot for phoning in. We hope we answered your question. We want to take this next one from uh, Carol in Texas. So, Carol, what's on your mind? Hi, Melissa. Thanks for taking my call. I watch you all every day, and I love all of you. Now, my have, I have all of the FANG stocks plus Apple, Baba, NVIDIA, Microsoft, and Boeing, to name a few, all that y'all have recommended. And I bought Amazon at 400 and Google at 600 
my question is, uh, since all of this is in our 401k and we don't ever expect to have to use this money, can I just forget these stocks and hope in five or ten years my kids will be rich, or should I buy sell a home? Well, Carol, I mean, question I mean that's, a, that's a great it's a question. Great question. Yeah. Right. There's, there's so many layers to that question, and thanks for being a fan. And Carol actually said off-air she even likes Dan Nathan. No, she yeah. didn't. Yeah. I don't believe that. Listen to her. Carol, didn't you say didn't that? Did Really? Does. All right. So as a FANG investor, what <laughs> do you do? Well, you've done very well. And the short answer is, again, Karen, Karen will say this all the time. It doesn't matter where you bought the stock because if you own it today, the price that it closes is where you effectively own it at. But if you do have a five-year time horizon, all the names you mentioned are fundamentally very much intact. I think they're all going through their own personal crises, but I do think they will pass. So my, my suggestion with you would be keep watching our show. But don't necessarily watch every price fluctuation in the six names that you mentioned, because I think five or six years from now, you'll be very happy. Yeah, so, Carol, I, that's a really great question. It's a great portfolio, but they're all very well correlated, too. And so I don't know if you heard our prior guest, Lizanne Saunders from Schwab. She talked about rebalancing sometimes. And so, you know, one of the things I would just say is when sentiment felt really, really hot, really great about all of those names you just talked about two months ago, it might make sense, even in a retirement account, to take some off the table and then think about another opportunity, another um, sector that may look interesting on valuation or the fundamental story on a long-term basis. So that's kind of one piece of advice I would throw in there. All right. Thanks for calling in, Carol. Carol from Texas. Next uh, question here. Dave from Illinois. Dave, what's your question? Thanks, Mel. Last week's market movements were difficult to digest as concerns about a more hawkish Fed, trade wars, tech regulatory pressure, and more churn and chaos at the White House weighed in on the S&P, which finished the shortened holiday week down 7.5%, just barely above its 200-day moving average, and today it dropped below. So I'm looking for some guidance and a way to navigate April, historically a good month for markets. And I see this week to be critical to determine market direction. How do you see it? Brian Kelly, why don't you tackle that question? For yeah, you? well, thanks for the call. And, and a lot in there because what, what you talked about is everything that investors are afraid of and what has been driving this market lower. So, again, I think once you've had a sell-off like that, you need to reevaluate and say a couple things. Has the economy changed? Has the direction of the economy changed? We've had some repricing. There may be some things on the horizon that are concerning, but we're not looking at a recession. We're not looking at a slowdown in growth. We're looking at a repricing of what's going on. So that's number one. I agree with you that this week, in the shorter term, does appear to be somewhat of a critical week. And that's more of a sentiment type of thing, right? So we're looking at this when, if everything feels horrible, I think we've all said it tonight, when it feels the worst and you're the most nervous, that's probably the time you want to be, want to start buying. And then on the other side of that, I would add, these concerns are probably not going to go away in the next week or two or the next month. So when the market does rebound, and some of these uh, fears have subsided. You definitely want to be taking some off the table as we get closer to the highs again. All right. Dave, thanks a lot for calling in. And thank you to all of our callers who have called in so far uh, tonight. I love this. We should do a show like this. <laughs> Here's a question that I have. For us? That, yeah, that I thanks think that a lot. You know, <laughs> can I call in? All right. What are, the, what are the safety trades in this market? Bob had mentioned gold. I mean, I think implicit to all of these questions is where, do you, where can you comfortably wait out this market volatility? Is there 
an answer to that. Well, Steve Grosso says correctly that you know when the market goes down, 70% of the underlying stocks go down with it. So 70% of the stocks are correlated with the broader market. So I'm not certain there are safe. People will point to dividend-paying stocks. Mm -hmm. And the safety in that is the dividend that it pays. But we've seen on a number of days where if you have a 3.5% dividend-yielding stock and, it dials, and the stock is down 4%, well, you've just given that up. So to me, dividends are just sort of the cherry on top, not a reason to buy the stock necessarily. Still ahead, Tesla shares crashing as CEO Elon Musk took a bizarre April Fool's joke on Twitter a little too far. So is Musk a liability for Tesla? We'll have a special report. Plus, if you're worried about this crazy market relaxed, Guy Down will tell you exactly what you should and should not do during a sell-off right after this. Welcome back to CNBC's special coverage of the market sell-off. And take a look at shares of Tesla, now down 35% from September highs. This is CEO Elon Musk has shown some pretty strange behavior on Twitter. Philip Bo's got all the details. Hi, Phil. Hi, Melissa. A wild day for Tesla. Let's go down, uh, make a rundown of everything that happened today. Let's start first off with the most recent news happening within the last couple of hours. Tesla announcing that Elon Musk is now in charge of production at Tesla. Doug Field, who had uh, been in charge of production for the last year, uh, is now going to handle strictly engineering duties. So Elon Musk will be in charge of overseeing production. Company says, look, he did it in the past. He's uh, actually better positioned to uh, step in right now as they try to ramp up production. And then he was tweeting a lot today. We'll talk more about that a little bit because some of it had to do in relationship to his tweets on April Fool's Day. But the final question that a lot of people have is what's going to happen with Model 3 production when the numbers are finally reported? We expect that to happen tomorrow or the next day after that. The guidance is for 2,500 Model 3s per week at the end of the first quarter. A media report earlier today said that Tesla probably got to 2,000 per week, according to an internal memo. The company will not comment on that report. Analysts, though, expect the number to be more in the range of 1,500 to 1,700 Model 3s per week. As for the tweeting, remember, yesterday being April 1st, April Fool's, Elon Musk sends out a tweet saying, we're bankrupt. Well, after a number of people made comments on social media, Elon tweeted today, seriously, obviously, I'm not going to do an April Fool's joke about going bankrupt. Bankrupt is what he actually wrote there. If I thought there was any chance, it would actually happen. As you take a look at shares of Tesla, and we're showing you a two-year chart of Tesla, keep in mind that the stock broke below $250 for the first time since March of 2017. That happened today before it came back above $250. And we also talked with Ron Barron, the legendary investor. He says he's sticking with Tesla. He knows there's a lot of volatility out there, but he still believes in the stock. So, Melissa, a very wild day for Tesla and a lot of tweeting from Elon Musk. Didn't he? Didn't Ron Barron, though, get in, like, I don't know, double digits? <laughs> I mean, early, early, yeah. early on, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he's got I'm, a lot I'm, of I'm downside sure to where his level is. Absolutely, he does. <laughs> yes. Um, in terms of Elon Musk's tweetage uh, today, Phil, it seemed to get more defensive as the day went on. He tweeted back at the Wall Street Journal. He tweeted right. back at the information about the support that he is now taking over production of the Model 3. Does it seem right. like a and change the NTSB in tone? As well. And the NTSB, exactly. Does it seem like a change in tone for Musk to start really addressing all these people? And, and they're not, you know, they're not directing anything to him, per se, but a Tesla in general. 
Uh, this seems like vintage Elon Musk. Mm. If you come at him, he will come at you. And if you mock him or if you say you have no business doing what you're doing, whether it's tweeting, whether it's getting involved with the production of the vehicle, he will generally come back at you. Actually, Melissa, relative to how I've seen him in the past, when people have uh, gone after him, so to speak, or criticized him, mm -hmm. he can be much harsher, much snarkier. Today, he was relatively subdued for Elon Musk. But make no mistake, he hears what people are talking about, and he knows that people may think he's crazy, whether right. it's to step in on production or whether it's to release information regarding uh, the Model X mm -hmm. accident that's under investigation by the NTSB. Right. Uh, his feeling is, I'm going to put the information out there, and I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you, and let the, everything happen the way it's going to happen. All right. Phil, thanks a lot. Phil about covering the story for us from Chicago. Is sentiment so bad? I mean, we even are in a situation where the most bullish analysts on the street, they don't expect these targets to be hit. I mean, are we at a point now where sentiment may indicate that there could be a buying opportunity? I think so. I think so. I think the real problem you have with the street estimates and what Elon Musk is doing is it's two different cultures, right? Here on Wall Street, we're talking about the next quarter. Are they going to meet this estimate? You build out a model and you get this earnings estimate based on how many cars are going to be built. But that's not how Elon Musk thinks. He thinks in five-year, ten-year increments. He thinks about changing the world, and that's the problem you're having with this. And, you know, if you look at Ron Barron, that's why Ron Barron is saying, I have a 10-year view on this. And not just this world. He's talking about Mars, too. I mean, you guys were talking about, like, the stock in spite of him. The stock is only here because of him. So, to me, I think guys like Ron Barron are thinking 20 years out. Right. And I think that's the way a lot of investors are. Still ahead, does the crazy market have your head spinning? Well, relax, because Guy Dami here will break down the three things not to do during a sell-off. Stay tuned. Welcome back to CNBC's special coverage of the market sell-off. The stock's getting slammed today. The Dow, S&P, Nasdaq, all in correction territory. But if you're worried about the sell-off, don't be. Because Guy Dami has a breakdown of exactly what you should and shouldn't be doing during these crazy times. In a segment we like to call, The More You Know. Guy. Yes, we do, Mel, and thank you. And listen, folks, these are things that I would look at. And I'm going to speak broadly. Number one, don't make sudden changes. We're all driving on the highway, and when... Traffic picks up and speed. The last thing you want to do is change lanes. Stay in your lane. Wait for the traffic to dissipate. Same thing with your portfolio. No reason to make sudden changes in this environment. Number two, don't make panic phone calls. Don't call your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your mom, your dad, your aunt, your uncle, because they're all going to tell you the same thing. Stay the course. The time to make those calls is when the market is in sort of an uptrend and you can have an intelligent conversation. Now's not the time. And the last one, in my opinion, don't pretend it's not happening. The move is happening. The market has been going down now for a month and a half. But use this as an opportunity to learn. Don't bury your head in the sand and pretend it doesn't happen. Hope is not an investment thesis, but you can use this as an educational tool and you'll be better for it. BK has a question. I do. Uh, Guy, so... Hi, BK. We, hey, how are you, Guy? Okay. I'm curious... People are not panicking here. They're not selling. But on the upside, they want to trim some. How do they know when to do that? What, what's the sign that you look for of when to trim on the highs? I think that's a great question. I think you're going to have a capitulatory bottom in the form of a very large volume day when stocks trade more volume than usual. I think you're going to see the bounce, and the bounce could be anywhere from 3 to 5%. And I would, if you're concerned, I would look for that bounce to take some money off the table, Brian. All right. Thanks for that, Guy. You're welcome, Melissa. Up next, <laughs> the traders will tell you what they're watching for tomorrow. Stay tuned.
Welcome back to CNBC's special coverage of the market sell-off. We do want to get a final check on the futures market before we go. And right now, take a look at the implied opens. It looks like we'll be in the red. The Dow looking to lose about 41 at the open. S&P down three. Nasdaq down about four. But keep in mind, this is very early going. We're waiting for uh, the Asian markets to open as well as the European markets. Some of those have been closed for Easter on Monday. So we'll get a better read earlier in the morning say, around Worldwide Exchange time, Spock Box time, so you want to tune back in Love for that. Um, time for the, the final word around the horn here, what the traders are watching for tomorrow, the day after this big sell-off day. So in the S&P 500, I'm watching that intraday low from February 9th at 2532. It's about 2% lower here. I really think it's got a hold before you start nibbling at those levels. BK. Yeah, for me, whether it's tomorrow or not, I'm looking for that capitulation bottom. A big gap down, reversal. That's what I want to see. Karen. Yeah, I'm looking at some Goog, looking at some City, but relax. Watch the game tonight. Big NCA final tonight. Good advice. Mind off it. Mark will be here tomorrow. Don't get used to this, people. JC will be back before you know it, right, Melms? Absolutely. You had us for two hours, but don't. I'm telling you. What am I watching? See how Europe trades. They were closed today. They were, yep. Very important tomorrow. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for us for our special CNBC coverage of the market sell-off. For more, be sure to tune in to Squawk Box tomorrow, beginning at 6 o'clock. In the meantime, Shark Tank starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.